and a very good morning if you're joining us online. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Would you please turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5, where three weeks ago, this is our fourth week in this passage, we began an exploration of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to continue that today as we read Matthew chapter 5 from verse 1 down to verse 11. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. We spent the last three weeks setting the scene for the Sermon on the Mount, helping us to understand the overarching themes and ideas of this passage. And this morning we want to turn our attention to the first three Beatitudes that we find in verses 3, 4 and 5 as we now begin the forensic task of journeying through this passage line by line to see what it might do to help us live our Christian lives in faithfulness to God and what he might want to say to us. So, the three Beatitudes that I want to look at with you this morning are Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When we began our exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, I reminded you that I, I don't think that this passage is written to everybody. I think it's written to followers of Christ. And that the world can see how we live, and therefore it has um, global or universal significance. But actually, these instructions are instructions to followers of Jesus. And I also mentioned to you that there was another sermon in the Gospel of Luke that sounds very similar, but is not identical to this passage. I'm not sure that they are the same sermon reiterated by Matthew and by Luke. I think it's more than possible that Jesus taught his... Um, Context and what he had to say more than once. Um, he was preaching for three years. The Gospels present us a summary for specific reasons of what the Gospel writers want us to hear. But I want to read with you the three first Beatitudes in that parallel passage in Luke's Gospel. So could you turn to Luke chapter 6 with me for a moment? There are very... Um, 
similar things. You will see it the minute we begin to read it about the two passages, but there are also very distinctive things, as I've said previously. One is on a plain, one is on a mountain. One has different language, one has different um, promises at the end of each of the, the, um, the Beatitudes. But I want to read with you just Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 21. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. So compare, if you had two Bibles, you would be able to do this. Compare those first three Beatitudes in Matthew's account of the sermon and in Luke's version of this teaching at this point, and you'll see that there are some differences. In Matthew, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's gospel, it's just blessed are the poor. In Matthew, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus goes straight to blessed are you who are hungry now in the sermon in Luke. He doesn't say anything about those who are mourning, for you will be filled. That comes later in Matthew's version. And thirdly, in the first set of, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In Luke's version, he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Those two things together make me pretty convinced that whilst these two sets of teaching from Jesus might well be addressing similar issues, they're not necessarily the same moment. One might have been in one context, one in another. They might have been the same moment, but it doesn't matter. Last week, no, I beg your pardon, the week before last, I took some time to help you realize that these eight steps, those of you that were here, if you won't, you'll be able to get the teaching online. These eight steps in the Beatitudes are like a spiritual journey. It begins when we acknowledge our need of God. We are those um, who are poor in spirit. Our first step in this journey, excuse me. Oh, it was my fault. I'm so sorry. I had it on mute in my pocket. And most of you said, well, praise the Lord for that, didn't you? Thank you for the encouragement. Um, I, I beg your pardon, it was on mute. Um, these three steps in the gospel that I want to focus on today are steps that can help us to think about our own spiritual lives. I want to read to you something that was written by Martin Lloyd-Jones about this passage. Oh, um, perhaps... 45, nearly 50 years ago, to help you understand the significance of what we are um, reading. About the Beatitudes, he says, these descriptions, I suggest, indicate clearly, perhaps more clearly than anything else in the entire run of Scripture, the essential utter difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. This is the thing that should really concern us. And that is why I say it is most important to consider the Sermon on the Mount. This is not just a description of what a person does. The real difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is set out here. The New Testament regards that as something absolutely basic and fundamental. And as I say, things at the present time, 
we must understand this essential difference. The difference between Christians and non-Christians has become blurred. The world has come into the church and the church has become worldly. The line is not as distinct as it once was. There were times when the distinction was clear-cut and there have also been, in those moments, the greatest heroes of the church who have arisen. We know, however, the arguments that have been put forward. We've been told that we should make the church attractive to the man outside. And the idea is to become as much like him as we can. There were certain popular padres during the First World War who mixed with the men and spoke to them and did this and that and the other thing with them in order to encourage them. Some people thought as a result that when the war was over, the ex-servicemen would be crowding into the churches. But it didn't happen. And it never has happened that way. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is the end of, it is the, end of the world when, it, when we are made to listen to her message and we become like the world. This is how revival comes, when we live clearly as followers of Jesus. We should make our ambition to be as much like Christ as possible, not to be as much like everybody else. And what the Sermon on the Mount does is set out the characteristics, these beatitudes that we're exploring, set out the, the characteristics of those who follow Christ. Are you poor in spirit? Am I poor in spirit? Am I a person who mourns at sin? Do you and I exhibit signs on symbols and characteristics of meekness or not? When we read these Beatitudes, all eight of them, you will notice something. There are three sets of promises and there are three sets of definitions of the person involved. So in the three that we're looking at, they are blessed are the poor in spirit... The promise is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second one is, blessed are those who mourn. The promise is, they will be comforted. The third is, blessed are the meek. And the promise is, that they will inherit the earth. The word blessed, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, couldn't possibly simply mean happy and rejoicing. It couldn't mean that we clap with Cheshire grin cats uh, faces. The word means a deep sense of the reality of having a God's grace and mercy and power at work in our lives when these things are evident. It doesn't and can't make sense any other way. So Jesus is saying, for the purposes of this morning, you are in the best place that you can be when you are poor in spirit. Because the kingdom of God is yours. You are in the best place that you can be when you are mourning because you will be comforted. And you are in the best place that you can be when you are meek because when that is true, you will inherit the earth. So what does he mean by each one? The idea of being poor in spirit is not simply about physical poverty. It's about, particularly in the Old Testament, but all the way through the Bible, a sense of needing and being willing to acknowledge our reliance on God. Turn back to Psalm 34, verse 6, 
And you will read words like this, depending on what version of the Bible you read. This poor man or this poor person cried, and the Lord heard him. In the Old Testament, poverty is not necessarily simply associated with physical poverty. And certainly in the Beatitudes, I don't think the point that Jesus is making is that in order to be happy, you have to be physically poor. I'm not sure the church has always been good at understanding that. I know many people who are physically poor but are not happy. And I know many people who are physically poor but are very happy in the sense of this beatitude. No, to be poor in spirit is to be those who acknowledge their need of God. Whatever station you hold, whatever position you hold, whatever length of time you or I have been Christians, to be poor in spirit is to say, I need God's grace. It is to daily live our lives with the acknowledgement, I am a broken woman or a broken man. I make mistakes, I fall, I falter, I get it wrong. I kind of meander through life. There are situations that I get things right in and there are situations that I get things wrong in. And when we are poor in spirit, when we adopt a posture of recognizing our own, not somebody else's frailty, our frailty, when we acknowledge our own brokenness, when we acknowledge our own sin, when we acknowledge that we get relationships wrong, that we don't every always get things right, that we make mistakes, that we need God's grace. There is an attendant blessing promised to the person who adopts that posture in life. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember when Jesus said this about his cousin, John the Baptist? He is the greatest of all that have come before me, but he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. The entry point to God's family, the point, the door that we must walk through in order to become part of the family of God is a door in which we acknowledge our own poverty of spirit. It isn't a door where we acknowledge everybody else's. It's not a door where we point to everyone else and tell them how much they must change. It isn't a door that says, um, you need to fix this in your life and this in your life and this in your life. It is a door that says, my life needs fixing. I am a broken person. And it is interesting that the first part of Jesus' teaching focuses in on that with this powerful promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A promise that's repeated in the last beatitude as well. We become citizens of a new kingdom when we begin to acknowledge this. We enter into a new place. We find a liberty of not always to be needing to be right, not always having to have the answers, but instead we are allowed to live in this fullness of genuinely being alive and not having to be perfect. This idea of being poor and being poor in spirit is scattered across the Bible. Turn with me for a moment to another couple of verses. Isaiah chapter 41. And we're going to stay in Isaiah for just a moment or two. Verse 17 and 18. Again, you'll see a a physical and a metaphorical meaning here. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water 
and the dry land springs of water. Turn to Isaiah chapter 57 for a moment. Verse 15. For thus says the holy and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. When Jesus announced his ministry, he quoted from Isaiah chapter 61. In Luke chapter 4, if you would turn to that with me for a moment. Sometimes called the Nazareth Manifesto. And we read this in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4 from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the poor. The Beatitudes is like a lifeline to you if you think you're not good enough. It's like a breathing hole if you think that you are not holy enough. But if you think that you are holy enough, it's a nail in the coffin of your spiritual life. If you think that you don't need to change, if you think that there's nothing in you that is wrong or needs fixing, the Beatitudes confront you with a very strong choice. Are you going to acknowledge your need of God and by so doing step into a new spiritual reality of life and blessing and hope? Or are you going to hold on to the fact that you think you don't need God, that you have everything sorted out, and by so doing continue to live in a desert without his grace and without his mercy? There's something powerful and beautiful about the fact that this is Matthew's first record of Jesus' public ministry. When you read the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 17, it describes a church called the church of Laodicea. And Paul, uh, I beg your pardon, John, writing to that church on behalf of Jesus, says that Jesus has something to say to them. And he says this to them, you, are, you think you are rich, but you are poor. You think you have everything, but you need to discover again God's grace at work in your life. So this first beatitude reminds us of who can come to Christ. See, it's Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, once said this, about this passage. The, rise, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. To come into God's presence, to in, inhabit and enjoy God's grace and mercy, we must acknowledge our need of him. When the angel appeared to the Virgin Mary to tell her that she would carry the Son of God, she responded with something that is known as the Magnificat. And one of the lines in that recorded in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 53 is this. You send the rich away empty. Well, God still does. He doesn't send the physically rich away empty. That's not what the passage means. But he sends those who think they don't need God's grace away empty handed. Because if you have no need of it, why would he need to give it to you? The second beatitude is linked to it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
So the state is a state of regret, a state of mourning, of sorrow or sadness. But what about? And the promise is comfort. The word that is used for comfort here is not simply an arm around you saying, it's okay, it'll be all right, Campbell. It's a giving of strength. It is a sharing of hope. It's it's an, an invitation into an experience that your story's not over yet. There's another chapter to come and you can step into it with confidence when you step into it with a right spirit and a right heart. I think that this beatitude is referring to those who are able to deal adequately and rightly with the mistakes in their own lives. When we can come to God with a sense of not simply regret, but wanting to be open to God and allow him to change us. When we come humbly, when we come honestly into his presence and say, Lord, do what you want in me, then God is able to do something with us. Again, it's a personal thing. Too often we spend our time telling other people how they need to get their lives right with God. But perhaps the Beatitudes are about you and I getting our lives right with God. This idea of mourning carries the idea of both regret and, as I said a few weeks ago, repentance. But I want to pause for a moment because I think that it isn't just about our own situations. In Ezra chapter 10 and in Romans chapter 7, Ezra in the first passage and Paul in the second weep at the sin of God's people. They look around, not just at themselves, but at the community of faith and are deeply sad by what they see. In Ezra, they see a community that has turned away from God, that is doing its own thing, that has intermarried, that has forgotten the commandments, that is ignoring the command to tithe, that isn't worshipping properly. In Paul's uh, situation, he talks about first his own sin, and then he talks about the sin of Israel and not acknowledging who Jesus is. I would think that most of us in this room who are Christians, if not all of us, struggle with our own sin. We are aware of it, I think. Many of us sometimes feel it's going to overpower us, that we can't get through it. We, 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 we need comfort and hope that God can deal with it. Well, he can. He will. He did. And we'll talk about that in a moment or two. For all sin. But there's also a sense in which we can be sad at the state of the church. We can be sad at the state of Denominations at the state of the kingdom, at the state of the witness of God in the world, it can, it can make us sad. When we acknowledge that the church of Jesus Christ, this church and every church, needs God's grace, needs God's mercy, and needs God's help, there's a comfort that comes to us. It's that sense of the Holy Spirit coming alongside us and saying, God hasn't finished his work yet. I will build my church, Jesus said. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I remember one person saying to me years ago, I wasn't long a Christian. If you ever find a perfect church, don't ask me to join it. You know what's coming next, don't you? And I said, why is that? He said, because I'll spoil it. 
There's a sense that every church is on a journey. Every community of faith gets things wrong. Every uh, expression of God's people struggles with the highs and the lows of trying to be faithful. And there's something in this powerful second beatitude about a promise of comfort when you're honest about that. Maybe it's when you try to be the perfect church that you miss out on the comfort. Maybe when it's true that you allow yourself to be honest, that we're still a work in progress, that we're still trying to get there, that none of us are perfect. No pastors, no elders, no churches, no disciples. Nobody is perfect. We have a sense of God being at work in us and comforting us and saying, well, I'm still here. I haven't finished with you yet. I haven't finished with what I'm going to do in your life individually and the plans that I have for you are still there. I think also we can mourn at the sins of others. We can be hurt. We can find life difficult sometimes. We can be in situations where we don't know how to respond when somebody says something or does something. Let me read to you Psalm 119. Not all of it, you'll be glad to know. Verse 36. Turn my heart to your decrees. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities. Confirm to your servant your promises. Turn away the disgrace that I dread. See, I have longed for your precepts. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, there's a sense of God looking at the sin of the world through Ezekiel and saying that he is broken by it. When Paul writes to the church in Philippi in chapter 3, verse 18 of his letter, he says that he is mourning at the sin that is creeping into the church. Which of us in this room hasn't looked when another suicide bomber has blown up themselves? Or another person has gone into a school in America and shot round them and not felt sad? Which of you has watched marriages that have broken up? Things that have gone wrong in companies or families or circumstances. People that have been imprisoned. This week, a great leader in the church um, for many years around issues of disability who died last year. An independent review found out that he had abused a number of women. Which of us doesn't look at that and feel sadness in our heart? Hearing of local churches where people have had to be stepped down from ministry because of wrong relationships, seeing children that are starving, whatever it might be. Doesn't sin make us sad? Doesn't wrongness in the world break our hearts? Not only when it knocks on our own door, but when we watch it on television, when we see things and think it's not fair, it's not right. Well, the second beatitude has a promise to that too. When you see that, remember, there is comfort in God's plans and purposes. God will deal with all the sin of the world. We will be comforted. He deals with our sin. He deals with our sin. He deals with the world's sin. Let me read you or recite to you verses from the Bible that I leave you to think about. I've read them to you and said them to you many times, but they are important. When John the Baptist saw his cousin coming to be baptized in the River Jordan, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
The most famous verse in the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. An aged John writing to the church in Ephesus about the same God who deals with sin says this about the Lord Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not for our sins only. This is still John speaking. Also for the sins of the whole world. The promise is that Christ has dealt with sin and can comfort those who give it to him. What have you done? Where have you made mistakes? Where have I made mistakes? Stand in the comfort of God. He's dealt with it. He dealt with it through his son on the cross and there is comfort for you. There is hope for you. There is compassion for you. There is mercy for those who will acknowledge and turn to Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word for meek here in Greek is the, the word praus, not the Toyota car that is a hybrid. P-R-A-U-S. And it means um, having an honest estimation of yourself. Do you see how these three Beatitudes sit together? Having an honest estimation of yourself. And when you have those three things sitting together, God is able to do something. And the promise here, you will inherit the earth. There is a sense in which not only in the future will those who reign with Christ reign upon the earth. There's a physical promise here. But there's also a sense in which our whole potentials open up to us when we declare our need of God. When we're ready to acknowledge our need of his grace and his mercy, when we're ready to walk in his ways, when we're ready to cast ourselves in dependency upon him, our whole lives become potential. Everything can change. Nothing is lost. God can write a new part of our story in a way that we don't see or understand. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Maybe it's because I'm 50 this year but the older I get the more grateful I am that God can write straight with my crooked lines the longer you get in the tooth the more you begin to realise that there's an awful lot still for you to learn and there's an awful lot that God is doing in your life that needs to be permissioned and given space for And as I look out across this congregation week by week, one of the greatest joys of my life is to be a pastor, not just a preacher, but a pastor. And I very often reflect that it is relatively straightforward, actually, to prepare a message and to preach it in a place and go on to somewhere else. It's much harder to walk with a group of people over many years. Because what you see are lives of often quiet desperation. Men and women trying to make sense of mistakes that they've made. Some years ago, some weeks ago, 
And a community like a church, in the end, becomes a community of grace, doesn't it? Where we discover that as we walk together, God walks with us. And as we give him our brokenness, as we give him our mistakes, as we give him our faults, as we give him our uncertainties, as we give him our regrets, he takes these threads that we feel are just bits of our lives and he begins to weave something. And after a while you step back and you look at what he has woven and it is stunning. A tapestry of grace. A community of hope. A story of broken people who are being, not have been, but are being healed by Jesus' mercy. Whose rough edges are being smoothed out. Whose uncertainties are being answered. Whose mistakes and faults and failings and longings and dreams and aspirations are being woven together into a community that says to the world, there's room here for you too. There's space at our table for you. There's room in our hearts for you. So where do you find yourself this morning? Poor in spirit? Mourning? Needing God's grace and God's mercy? Feeling that your life needs him to touch you in a powerful and in a new way? Well, wherever you find yourself, may God in his grace and in his mercy come close to you.